the reason why we're doing uh, this uh, sermon series is that on one hand, it is a vision series for us as a church. Like this teaching series is really our anchor. This is what we are about as a church. But on the, the other hand, the other reason why we're doing this is we are undertaking a capital campaign to raise funds so that we can renovate our basement. So let me just pause right there and just uh, share two things about that. Perhaps uh, you've, you've never been around a church or a nonprofit that has ever done a capital campaign before, and that would not surprise me whatsoever. I w- I've been in many churches, seven churches, and I've never seen a capital ca- campaign uh, um, up front. But capital campaigns are actually undertaken for a lot of different reasons. Uh, perhaps a church may do a, a capital campaign to raise money to buy property, where they just want to buy the property that someday they will build a, a church building at. Uh, another uh, could just be t- example could be raising funds so that you are, have the funds available to purchase a, a building. And so our, our mother church, our sister church, Ironworks Church Phoenixville had a capital campaign all of 2018 to buy their church property. And so they bought that church property up in Phoenixville. And, and per other times it's done just to expand your facility, to renovate your facility, or some other strategic uh, initiative. But almost all the time it has to do with facilities. And so the point, that one of the things I've been saying over and over again about our building, it was built in, in 1895. It's 125 years old this year, which is awesome. And we, want, we just recognize this is an incredible gift to us. But how, how can we use it well? How can we care for it well? And just presently, our basement's unusable uh, from uh, just deferred maintenance to mold and, and other things. And so we're conducting this uh, capital campaign um, fr- from now until uh, April 26th. And, and this capital campaign, as what we're doing, just to give you the whole plan, is that uh, here's the, this, the vision of, of what we are about, how we want to use this church. We are all in with Jesus. We're all in for Westchester, all in with one another. And the next week, all in for the next generation. That's our vision. That's what we're about. And then, and as we have been uh, meeting with the architect, uh, like this past week, Kira and I met with the architect and the contractor uh, twice. And like as we receive the blueprints and plans and budget, we'll be sharing those things with you. But throughout that time, in a couple weeks, we'll be asking uh, you to begin praying about. Uh, a giving commitment where you are making a pledge, whether it is a one-time gift or a pledge over uh, three years where you can uh, support and be a part of this uh, campaign. And that's coming uh, up. And so, but here's what I would like you to do, to, to really continue to do what I've been asking you to do, to pray about it, to dream about it, to imagine what can we do with our space if, when the basement's finished. And, uh, like, I have a lot of answers to that, to be honest. Like, for example, um, we actually had to say no this past week to a really awesome uh, facility use request. And one of them was that, uh, specifically, a a ministry to international students asked to use our space this past week. And we were already letting others use our space for a book club. And that's great and grand, but if we have our basement finished, we can say yes to so many things. And so I want you to invite and to begin dreaming, what can we use this space for? And, uh, and that's it, to begin dreaming and asking, what, Lord, what would you want us to do with this space? 
And I know the, the prayer of our elders, our, our borrowed elders, they are praying that, Lord, may we use this building for your kingdom here in Westchester. And if we don't, let's give it to somebody else. That's the prayer of the elders. I'm like, that's a bold prayer. Let's go. So, uh, yeah. So let's, uh, uh, let's dive into our, 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 th- our the third idea of what we are, the fact that we are all in with one another. Actually, let me put back up. But this is what I was beginning to say. If you have questions about this campaign, please let me know. Because if you are asking the question, I guarantee you five other people are asking the question. And so you can really serve one another by asking questions. Let it, like, and so I'll be sharing, using this time before uh, the sermon to, and during the announcements to share more and more about the campaign in the coming weeks. So if you have questions, please let me know. So let's uh, dive into our, our passage today. We're looking at John 15, and as you're opening your Bibles to John 15 and John 17, which is also in your worship guides, let me uh, share something. Uh, uh, this is a question that I get pretty often, because the question that I get is, where does the name Ironworks Church come from? I get this question. I really do. Because it's not a traditional, traditional name. It's not Third Presbyterian Church. It's not Church of the Ascension. It's not Reformed Presbyterian Church. It's not Resurrection Community Church. It's not a traditional church name. So where does it come from? Well, it's very specifically that the name is an allusion to an Old Testament proverb where iron sharpens iron. As iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. That's Proverbs 27, verse 17. So as a church, like even in our name, we strive to be a congregation that is all in with one another. We want to be a church where we are sharpening one another, where we are encouraging one another to follow Jesus Christ. Because the truth is we need one another in order to grow in Christ. And so we are a church that's committed to being all in with one another. And so we're exploring what this idea looks like by looking at John 15 and John 17. So let's look at John 15, verses 12 through 17. I'm reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your worship guide, or you can follow along on the walls behind me. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. I have called you friends. For all I for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you love one another. And then jumping to John 17, verses 18 through 23. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. This is the word of the Lord. 
Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. Be with us now. May your spirit be at work in our hearts that we would uh, know your word, know your truth, and live by it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I have a, I have a, a preacher's joke for you. They're the corniest thing on the planet, but this is a good one. And so when you, the, the joke is this. When you read the, the Gospels, you see Jesus performing miracles. He calms the storm, and there's only the 12 disciples. He uh, performs another miracle where he is feeding the 5,000, and then he performs other miracles, and only Peter or James or John or just those three are there. And a lot of people talk about these miracles. They are incredible. They reveal something about who God is, but no one talks about the miracle that Jesus did, that while he was in his 30s, he had 12 close friends. That's the joke. Like I said, it was corny. Nobody talks about Jesus, who, who while he was in his 30s, had 12 close friends. And that's, I want to lean into this idea of Jesus' friendship. Truly, Jesus' friendship with his disciples is not a miracle per se, but it was supernatural. It was divine in origin because here we have Jesus' friends. We have a picture of the church. It is God's family. The church is meant to be different from other communities. And Jesus said such as such just that. In another moment, he's teaching a crowded room. It's packed. His mom and his brothers, his family are coming to hear him teach. And they're trying to get into the room, and they can't. So they send word to Jesus. Hey, tell, tell, tell Jesus, tell our son that his family's here. And Jesus says something in reply that's incredibly shocking. My, my family are those who do the will of the Father. In other words, Jesus' family, the spiritual family, took a greater priority even over his physical, biological family. The, ch the church, as the family of God, is meant to be very different than other communities and other uh, relationships that we have. And so what we find arising out of Scripture, and this is the entire idea of what I want us to look at today, is that the fundamental thing that sets the church apart is our love for one another. Our love for one another. And I want to consider that idea, that we are called to love one another, that we're called to be all in with one another. So let's consider this. And our first point for today is that the simple fact that we are made for community, that we are made for community. In the earliest pages of scripture, we see God creating Adam and we hear him saying over all of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. But when he creates Adam, we hear God saying, it's not good for man to be alone. And that's odd. That should jump out at us when we, you're, we are reading John, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 because over and over again we hear this pattern. It's, this is good, this is good, this is very good, but it's not good for man to be alone. There was something lacking when God created, created Adam, and the, the, what, what it was is that Adam did not have companions. Adam did not have a partner. And this is a passage that I go over with others in premarital counseling, and, but we would honestly deceive ourselves if this passage is solely or exclusively about marriage because if it would be just about marriage, it would actually be an indictment against Paul and it would also be an indictment against Jesus. 
as either were, neither were married. But what God is simply saying to us in, in the, when he says this is not good, he is saying that we are created, that we are meant to have deep, intimate relationships with one another. He made us, he created us to be relational beings where we are communal beings as we reflect his glory. As because we're image bearers of God, we reflect his image to others. Let me explain that. Because we are made for community simply because our God is a community within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. God is love. And he, and he is known and shared that his love is known and shared and directed to each member of the Trinity. God the Father has always enjoyed loving his Son and the Spirit. And so the act of creation that where he made all things where we are called to love others is very appropriate for him because that's who he is. We are meant to reflect his love to others and we are meant to live in community with one another. That's not a choice. That is a fundamental part of what it means for us to be human. Now some uh, take that, but like, like I said, now some take this idea that this is just about marriage, but it's not just about marriage. But what the other thing that arises out of this verse is that it just shows that we are lonely. We are lonely when we do not live in relationship with others. And Scripture's explanation for loneliness, where we are, in fact, alienated and isolated from one another, arises from sin. God, God very specifically what happened is that when we sinned against God, we were alienated from, from him. When we sinned against God, well, the consequences of that were it's personal and cosmic, where we are, don't know ourselves, where we don't know others, where we, in fact, uh, are, are at conflict within ourselves and are competing with others as well. We're alienated. We're separated from God, from one another, creation, and ourselves. Really, in other words, loneliness. The loneliness that we experience is is because of our sin. And so we live in a day and age where we have this incredible technological advance, advancement where I can talk to my cousins across the, the Atlantic Ocean and, and see their face through the gift of Skype or FaceTime. We have this incredible technological advance, advancement that can really bring us together. But despite all this technological advancement, we are, we are more isolated than ever before. We are more isolated than ever before. And, and social studies have revealed that the more we use uh, social media, the more we use social media, the more mental illness is on the increase. Comparison, C.S. Lewis, I'm quoting him like three times today, just a warning. C.S. Lewis said that comparison is the thief of joy. Loneliness is in fact linked to cardiovascular disease, dementia, and obesity. And, like, loneliness is not a good thing. But the th other thing that loneliness tells us in our heart as we ache with loneliness, that tells us that we are meant and made for belonging and community. Consider this scenario. And again, this is a, a social uh, study. Researchers uh, observed a group of people who are playing a game of ball with one another. They're tossing a ball from one person to another. That's the entire study. But... Scientists told everyone but one person that they were meant to pass 
the ball to one another and exclude that one person. And she did not know that. that this one person of the study group did not know that she would never have the ball tossed her way. And so put yourself in her shoes. You're in this group and you, you start playing a game and the ball is seemingly going to, uh, all around you from one random person to another random person. People are laughing. People are smiling. You're laughing. You're smiling. But then it, it dawns upon you. You realize that the ball is never going to come your way. This game is not for you. You realize you're not wanted. You're excluded. And so you just stop trialing and it's trying. You stop caring. And the researchers, as they performed this really cruel experiment, they discovered that this unwanted person also sensed that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose. The game reveals something that's very fundamental to our humanity that I've been saying over and over again, that we need community. We need a place to belong. We need love. And the reality of the gospel, the reality of the passages that we are looking at today, the answer is that Jesus provides community, belonging, and love for us. And one passage we did not read, it's John 4. It's really a fantastic passage. Read the whole passage sometime, John 4, and look at this dynamic. But in the passage, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And this episode occurs very early on in Jesus' ministry. He surprised his new 12 disciples for many reasons. Because in the passage, we, we, and we see their surprise, in fact. But Jesus is there at the well at noon, and he's talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. Now, this woman is coming to the well at noon as opposed to the early daylight hours or the, or the, the later uh, hours around sunset. When it's cooler, she's coming in the middle of the day when it's the hottest and most unpleasant and most uncomfortable time of day to come and draw water, she's coming there because she's, she is a social outcast even within her own community. The scripture tells us that she has been married four times and the man that she is now living with, the fifth man, is not her husband. But the, what's clear to us as you read the passage is that here is what that Jesus is jumping over barriers to, to pursue this woman. One barrier is her gender. In that day and age, uh, women were prohibited from learning from rabbis. And here's the rabbi Jesus, and he's talking to a woman. He later on lets Mary and Martha, and he encourages Martha to sit at his feet and to learn from him. So Jesus is, is not letting her gender be a barrier to him. The other thing is that she is a Samaritan. And in that cultural moment, in that day, there, it, there is an animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews going back generations. Going back 500 years, in fact. But Jesus is not letting her ethnicity be a barrier to him. And also, as I just said, uh, here is her sin, where she is a social outcast uh, in, her, in her own town. And Jesus does not even let her sin be a barrier to his pursuit of her. He did not let anything separate his love from her, not her gender, not her ethnicity, and not her sin. And because of that, she becomes a part of his family. In fact, she is like really, to put it this way, she's one of the first evangelists. She's maybe the first evangelist. She goes back into the city of Samaria and says, come see this rabbi who has told me everything I have ever done, who knows things about my life that I never told anyone else. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus befriends us. Look at uh, John 15. You are my friends 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's the friendship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus befriends us and he chooses us, even when we would not choose him. That's the, that's the other uh, implication of that passage. Now, one scholar, this is a, a, one of our quotes for reflection in our bulletin. It's D.A. Carson. He's the research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, and he's also the president of the Gospel Coalition. So he wears a lot of hats. But he said this about the church. Ideally, the church is not a people who are naturally enemies. Instead, excuse me, the church, that's what I meant to say. The church is not a people who are naturally friends. Instead, they are naturally enemies. Think about that. The church is a people who are naturally enemies. We actually see this in Jesus' own relationships with his disciples. One of Jesus' disciples is Simon the Zealot. He is a terrorist who wanted to violently overthrow the Roman government and drive them out of Israel. And then on the other hand, you have Matthew, a tax collector, who is a Roman collaborator. And they're sharing the same food at the same dinner table with Jesus. They're on completely different opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet they are spiritual, spiritual brothers. Why? Because Jesus befriended them. Jesus, in other words, Jesus is making us into a new family where we are defined by his love for us. Jesus makes us into a new community. And this brings us into our second point today, where we are called to love one another. And let me just simply point out that loving others is hard. Whenever we invest in people, we're often disappointed. Whenever we pour ourselves into other people, we're often hurt. And sometimes, so perhaps this may describe you, that we, we move to an area for school or work or something else, and we're like, hey, I, I might only be here for like one or two years. I'm not going to invest myself into other people. So just even because of our uh, transitional culture, we prevent ourselves from investing in other people. And C.S. Lewis I told you I'm quoting him a few times. C.S. Lewis gets at this reality in his book, The Four Loves, and he describes how utterly tragic this is. He writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, where it's safe, where it's also dark, emotionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. Here's another illustration. Perhaps you were watching the Super Bowl and you saw the New York Life commercial and so when it came on, I actually originally thought that, hey, this is a, about C.S. Lewis and his four loves. And I saw those connections because the whole book can really be summarized in this commercial. The com commercial helpfully points out for us that there are four different Greek words to describe love. You have the love of friendship, like filio, like where Philadelphia comes from. You have the love that comes with respect towards teachers and grandparents and family members. You have the love of romance. But then you also have the love of action. And this is what Jesus is talking about. It is the love of action, which is the Greek word agape. Jesus is telling us to have this agape love. And that this is not characterized by what we say or feel, but what we do. Love 
So this command where we are called to love one another is a command for us to be vulnerable and to demonstrate our love to one another. Love is a verb. And this is thoroughly fleshed out for us in the New Testament. What we see right here in John 15 is that Jesus is holding up his own life as an example for us. Throughout his whole life, he was vulnerable. And because he loves you, he demonstrates his love for you by enduring mockery and suffering and ridicule and even being abandoned by his father upon the cross. All because he loves you. And so this command to love one another is, is, again, and as he holds up his own life as an example for us, he is calling us to be just as vulnerable as he was and to demonstrate our love to one another. And again, this is demonstrated for us throughout the the New Testament. Yes, in the life of Christ, but there's also, and I highly recommend you to do this Bible study. Just look up in your Bibles the number of verses where there, there is this command to one another. This is a command that, origi- that arises 59 times. And of those 59 times, 16 or 17 of those, depending on how uh, literally we want to get, is to love one another. Just a, a few examples. Romans 12.10 tells us that the church is meant to be a family devoted to one another. Paul tells us to honor one another, to encourage one another, to accept us as one another, just as Jesus accepted you. And in fact, three times in the New Testament, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Our love for one another is meant to be seen as affectionate, where, we, where people can just watch our life together and say, that is a church community that loves one another. So I'm not saying go and kiss one another with a holy kiss, but high fives or bear hugs, or whatever it may be. In fact, one of the earliest conversations we had, even like this is literally two and a half years ago, before we even opened as a church, we had this conversation on our launch team. It was like, hey, uh, who likes high fives or hugs or whatever else? And it was eye-opening. I was just, but, we, but the whole point of that was like, hey, let's just demonstrate that we love and care for each other. And that is what Jesus is calling us to do here where we are called to love one another, where we are, in fact, called to carry each other's burdens, to share our burdens with one another, and confess our sins to one another. And I often describe Ironworks as a gospel-centered church, and what I mean by that is that at the very center of our life together is the person Jesus Christ, where we, at the very center of our life together, is his love and his grace and forgiveness, because he befriended us. We did not befriend him. He chose us. We did not choose him. God chose us. That is grace, and we never earned it. There's nothing we can do to keep it. It is simply given to us because of Jesus Christ, and that's the scandal of of the cross because here's Jesus dying upon the cross for people who did not love him first, but he loved us. And so if we're going to faithfully follow the way of Jesus together, we need to do so as a church community that's centered on Jesus. This means where we share our stories, where we laugh, where we weep and cry and celebrate together, where we can help one another by not being paralyzed by shame, by going to one another. We can help each other by confessing our sins to each other, where we can share our own scandalous stories with one another. And and when we do that, we're giving the gift to one another to 
be the second person to share or the third person or the fourth person. And what this means is that this is actually a call for us to be humble because we have no reason to boast. Jesus did not choose us. Excuse me. Thank you. Jesus chose us. We did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose us. So we need to have humble hearts. We have no reason to be proud. And so if we have caused a scandal, then we should not be surprised by our sin. And there's no sin that should surprise us. In fact, the only sensational, truly scandalous sin is unrepentant and unconfessed sin. The only scandal in God's eyes is when we knowingly and purposefully persist in our sin when we know it is wrong. And my goal for you here at Ironworks is that this would be a church community where you find belonging here, where you can go to one another in the, the, where you can go to one another in, in the hard seasons of life and say, I'm having a hard moment. Where you can go to one another in, in a joyful season and rejoice with one another. Where you can go to other people and say, hey, can you come over tonight for game night? Can you, can, would you like to go out to eat after a worship some Sunday? And because the truth, like my goal for you, my prayer for you is that in this church that you have two or three people that you can go to and talk to and call friends. That's my prayer for you. And when you are a part of a church, you are bringing your imperfect selves here into this church body and you're joining yourselves to other people who are imperfect. And, when you, and that means we are an imperfect community, but the truth of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, we are be, we're going to experience healing and redemption and grace together. And the truth of this passage in John 15 and John 17 is that cannot happen without the person sitting next to you. That cannot happen without the person sitting next to you. And so the the church is meant to be this safe, gracious community for you to be known and to know others. And that is the catalyst for us to grow in Christ. Our third point today is to look outward. And look outward. And this is an important caveat for us because if you just stop there, the uh, entire idea of the church is that we are here just for the sake of the other person. Where we are just to be characterized by our love for one another and that's it. And that's a misunderstanding. The identifying mark of Christianity is love. And perhaps the most influential book in my life has been a short little booklet by the man Francis Schaeffer. And the book is entitled The Mark of the Christian. And really the whole book is a short commentary, a sermon on John 17, which we read earlier. And Francis gives us this insight. And this is the second quote of reflection in your bulletin. He writes this. If an individual Christian does not show love towards other true Christians, the world has a right to judge he is not a Christian. Here in John 17, Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting and much more profound, that we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. That is mind-blowing to me. Schaefer is capturing Jesus' words here in John 17. Like, this is what Jesus says. That may they be one as you and I, Father, are one, so that the world, this is verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's what Schaefer is capturing here. We cannot expect the world to know we are Christians by our love for one another 
excuse me, I said that wrong again. What Schaefer is saying here is that the world will know that we are Christians by our love for each other. Everything that we do as a church, as a community, and in our own individual spiritual life is for the sake of the world. It has this missional importance. And this is best really described for us, uh, perhaps in many people's lives, but I really love... Leslie Newbegin, and he uh, tells a story, and he is a Presbyterian missionary. He's from Scotland, and he's going to India, and he serves the Church of India there. And he is traveling, and he goes and meets this young, growing church in South India, and he's meeting with the elders. And during their meeting, they are telling about their young, growing church. They're saying, we have hundreds of people coming. We have many of these these ministries. And Newbegin is actually unimpressed he simply asks them why does your church exist why does your church exist and the question catches them off guard and the majority of the elders are silent but one elder says this that well we're here to meet the needs of our members whatever those needs may be and the rest of the elders agreed to that and then leslie newbegin who's serving at the time as a bishop in that of over that church in, com- in community says well if that's true then you should close the church. The church is not, does not solely exist for the sake of our own members. In fact, the church exists for the sake of its non-members. The church exists for the sake of the world. And so the church, this gathering right here, is meant to call men and women and children out of the world so that we can go back into the world as representatives of God's kingdom. The church exists for the sake of others just as much as fire exists for the sake of burning. And so sadly, we let so many things divide us. It could be our ethnic identity. It could be our political identity, where we live, our marital status, or our parental status, our lifestyle choices. But the call of Jesus that arises out of these passages is to, for us to befriend people who are different from us. And and frankly, some of the most redemptive moments in my life have come from friendships with people who are different from me. Real friendship happens when we move towards people whom we are tempted to avoid. These are the people who challenge our perspectives, who push our buttons and require us to put on love. And we need each other. We need people uh, to belong in our life, to have a role in our our life who are different from from us, who are from a different generation from us. And I said this earlier as a, a, in our, earlier this morning, our DNA leaders met, and I said this earlier, one of the greatest joys about pastoring this church is that we've had many people live this out by saying we want to be in a community group together with people of a different generation than us. Than us. And that's beautiful. And the picture that we see Jesus giving us here is that everyone has a place within the church. The Spirit fills us and empowers us, every single one of us, t- to love to be vulnerable, to demonstrate his grace in our life. And my prayer is that ironworks would be one, even as our God is one, and that we would be, re- that, that our unity and our love for one another would be seen, that the world would know that the Father loves the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you uh, that your son, Jesus Christ, that he befriended us that it's true that we can say we did, not, we did not choose you, but you befriended us, and that is a picture of the scandalous grace that you have shown us. 
So, Father, be with us in the coming uh, days and weeks ahead of us that we would uh, center our lives around your grace and that we would seek to make you known. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.